Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Coming up on today's show, planning to buy a car in 2023? Well, you don't have to be patient and maybe dial back your expectations. But nuclear power moving forward, at least in Ontario, the approval process has started for one of those small modular reactors. And Rogues, Rebels and Reformists, a guide to the potsters in Canadian history. So if you've been in the market for a new or even a used vehicle for the last, I don't know, almost two years now, probably, you know what it's like out there. It's been crazy. It's been really, really hard to find one. Uh, and costs have shot up like crazy on the used car side. It's just, it's been a real, real mess. So let's get some insight into how we got here and where we might be headed. We're going to chat now with Flavio Volpe, who is president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. Flavio, uh, thanks for joining us. Good to chat again. Oh, hang on. I got to push this button. I, I apologize, Flavio. I didn't have you on the air. How are you doing, sir? Good. Thanks for having me back on. Um, so let's. Why don't we just start with that? Like, why are we in this mess? It's it's, it's semiconductors, microchips, right? That's the yep. biggest yep. issue. Yeah, that's right. I think the world supply of microchips uh, dried up for the automakers in uh, 2021, uh, late 2020, early 2021. They the industry shut down for the first time ever for 60 days right at the beginning of the pandemic. Said, you know, we're not going to make cars, so we're not going to buy your semiconductors. Well, right. the world stayed home bought electronic goods, those semiconductor companies uh, switched their customers to electronic goods. And when the car makers came back around and said, we'll take them now, uh, the semiconductor companies said, hey, listen, get get in line. And so we've been in line for a year and a half. Yeah. And is the end in sight? I'm hearing reports that we're finally starting to see some progress on that front, slowly but surely. Yeah. You know, most of the analysts in, in our business are saying second half of 2023 looks like okay. uh, we'll be back to uh, to regular supply, yeah. What about the pandemic? How did that factor in? I mean, in addition to that shortage, was that a problem as well? We know supply chains were affected and stuff like that. Uh, yeah, I think what happened was, is, is you know, uh, you listeners will have heard about uh, supply issues from around the world, yeah. but mostly the logistics of getting... Uh, those components of those raw materials to those car makers when they ramped back up too. So, you know, in Canada, for example, production vehicles, you know, we usually make 2 million cars a year. We're probably down five or 600,000 this year. So if you've got automakers that are making 10 to 25% less cars, it ref- it gets reflected at your dealership lot. You go over there. Oh yeah. They usually have 70 days of inventory. They probably have, you know, 15 to 20 now. And so, it's tough. No, it's surprising. I mean, you can drive by a lot of dealerships today, and if people take note as they do, you take a look, the lots are still pretty empty out there, Flavio. Yeah, that's right. And it's, they're really empty. They're especially empty from a new car basis. Yeah. And then that shortage of new cars has really driven up the value for the first time in history, uh, literally first time in history of used cars. You know, year-over-year value uh, from February 2020 to September 2022, the average price of a used car went up 42%. You know, the most depreciating asset anybody could buy <laughs> suddenly became an investment. Up 42%? Yeah, yeah. Over that two years and a half, you know, what happened is, is that, look, if you need a car, yeah, and if, if there's normally 100 available, 
and there's uh, 90 customers, you know, you, you, you can you can go and make some deals. You know, somebody somebody's going to be left without a dance partner. Well, uh, now there's 90 customers and 20 cars. And yeah. so, uh, you know, everybody's squeezed. So uh, looking ahead, turning the corner into 2023, and like you say, there are some predictions that things could be getting better. What are you expecting in terms of the year when it comes to the used car side and the new car side? Well, we follow, uh, you know, smarter analysts than me uh, in our business as we try to plan for, you know, how many parts to make for how many car makers. And J.P. Morgan is saying, look, 2 to 5% decline for uh, for new car prices in 2023. Okay. There's a bit of a stabilization, maybe a plateauing. But they're also saying, look, watch out for used cars to drop 10 to 20% uh, over the course of the year. And so, you know, that... that that the comeback of the semiconductor microchip shortage uh, is going to give us some relief. But also, the counter on that, uh, slight counter on that, is the cost of money, you know, uh, has mm-hmm. gone up. But Bank of mm-hmm. Canada has, has, has increased the price of money by uh, 4% or so. And so, uh, that also, uh, you know, that also keeps uh, a lot of us out of that market, holding on to our uh, the cars that we have right now. Yeah, or at least changes, you know, what you might be looking for. What about electric, Flavio? We hear all that talk and the government talking about 2035. All vehicles must be electric. Where does it fit in? What's the the market like for electric vehicles right now? Well, if you can imagine that an electric vehicle needs a lot more uh, semiconductors uh, than a a gas vehicle, uh, the the shortage in supply on electric vehicles is uh, the most acute. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to hear people say that they went to their dealer and, you know, their electric Ford or their electric Toyota uh, is uh, a year, you know, a year wait or a year and a half wait. The, the electric market is going to come back to consumers in 2024, 2025, 2026, when every single automaker on the planet has announced yeah. Essentially, that every single one of their cars will have an electric option. So, if you're waiting for an EV, don't despair. Uh, 2024, 2025, 2026, your next next vehicle will invariably have that option. With all the change, if you're somebody who's sitting on a used vehicle and thinking of get ridding it, have you already? Has the window closed? Like, have you already lost top dollar? Is it too late? Should you, or can you still hold on to it for a while? No, no. Uh, but you're, the the sun is setting on that opportunity. Yeah. You know what I've been saying to people for about six six months now is if you have a a used vehicle that you're not using, you know your secondary vehicle, or if you know you're mostly getting around in different ways, you'll never get higher dollar for a good used vehicle right now. Uh, and, and so go get it. And um, and you you probably have a window of about uh, you know in my estimation another three months or so. Okay. But otherwise. You're back to having a car that loses its value. All right, uh, Flavio, good stuff as always. I appreciate you being here, sir. Thanks for having me on. You bet. That is Flavio Volpe, who is president of the Automotive Parts Manufacturers Association. Uh, he analyzes what's going on in the industry. It really has been something to watch. And I don't know, I'm, I'm driving the same 2014 Kia I've had for a while. I was going to get a new vehicle, but you can't find one. And, you know, actually, bottom line has kind of worked out pretty well saved myself a bunch of money by not having car payments so i don't know i might drive this thing as as long as i possibly can why not a story that i think is pretty important and we'll see how it goes um a couple of years ago now the province of alberta signed on with um ontario and saskatchewan and new brunswick on a plan to advance the use 
of nuclear energy in Canada. At the center of all are SMRs, small modular reactors. Uh, the most recent timeline that I've seen sees them potentially being online in our province sometime, well, well after 2030. Let's say at least 10 years, probably more. Um, a little faster in Ontario, though, the process of approving an SMR is underway in Ontario right now. But uh, that's no guarantee. Let's find out exactly how that works. We're going to chat with M.V. Ramana, who's a professor at the University of British Columbia School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, focuses on nuclear energy. Uh, Ramana, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate your time today. Thank you for inviting me. When we talk about these SMRs, the small modular reactors, give us a, sort of a, a layman's description, if you will. What, what exactly are these? Well, a nuclear reactor is just a very complicated way of boiling water. Uh, and this water is used to drive a turbine to produce electricity. If the uh, amount of electricity that a reactor is capable of producing is less than 300 megawatts, uh, that's just an arbitrary number, but that's said to be a small reactor. A large reactor is typically one that might generate up to about 1,000 megawatts. Uh, the ones that are operating in uh, Ontario, the last ones that were built, are a little over 900 megawatts. So this will be about a third or less of the amount of electricity that can be produced. Gotcha. Okay, so when we hear about can-do reactors, I think if anybody has any passing knowledge of um, nuclear energy in Canada, we, we've heard of can-do reactors. Yes. Those are the larger ones, right? We're not talking right. about that. No, we are not talking about that. Those are typically about 700. They generate about 700 to 900. Gotcha, okay. Uh, Megawatts, yeah. Now, the, the one that's being proposed for Ontario, um, what do we know about that one in particular? How big are we talking about? What does it do? So it's designed to be generating 300 megawatts. It's designed by a company called uh, General Electric and Hitachi. They have combined together. Uh, and it's based on a, an older, larger size reactor. Uh, called It's a boiling water reactor, which means somewhat different from a can-do. Uh, in that it requires the use of enriched uranium. Uh, Canada is not enriched uranium. The uh, uranium has to be enriched in a centrifuge, as is done in the United States. As we may, people may have heard about the Iran uh, uh, building these centrifuges. So it requires the use of uh, the, the particular reactor that is being proposed for Ontario, uh, the BWRX-300, requires enriched uranium. Uh, and is somewhat different from CANDO reactors. So we have, in Canada, there's been no experience of building a reactor like this. Um, the approval process. We, we haven't done an approval process for a reactor in Canada in some time. When was the last time we went through this? Uh, we went through it in the uh, early 1990s. Uh, and since then, we have not really gone through any. Uh, and that's because there's been no plan to construct one for a long time. Gotcha. Okay. Now, what's the process like? What are they looking at? What questions will they be trying to answer? Yeah, so what, when you think about a nuclear reactor design, it's basically, at this point, a paper design. Uh, there's been none that's been constructed so far anywhere in the world. And a good regulator uh, should be asking questions about how safe this reactor is. So in principle, they would be asking questions like, what will this design do if there is an earthquake in that region, if there's a fire, if there are floods, if an operator uh, at the plant makes a mistake and presses the wrong button? 
all these things, the regulator is supposed to make sure that the reactor will not suffer an accident and uh, disperse radioactive materials uh, around the uh, around the facility. And so these are going to be a lot of hard questions, and we don't know what the answer is going to be. Right, exactly. And, and that remains to be seen. We do know the goal, Ontario talking about 2028. That's their hope. This is the first step of the process to see that reactor online. What do you anticipate in terms of this process and the timeline? Yeah. So based on the history of nuclear power so far, we can expect uh, two things to happen. One is uh, the pro- when the regulator starts asking these questions, uh, it's quite likely that the uh, nuclear reactor designer will have to change the design. They will find that they will have to ad- adapt the design, uh, make uh, uh, new, bring in new features, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that typically tends to take a longer time than people anticipate. And the second thing that's almost guaranteed to happen is that the projected costs will go up even before construction starts. And then, of course, once the construction starts, the costs are going to go up even more. And that's historically, have we seen this kind of work being done with these kinds of reactors? Has it happened anywhere else on Earth where we can take a look at it? Yeah, this this happens everywhere. uh, But specifically, this particular company, GE Hitachi, uh, did uh, introduce a, a new design in the United States called the ESBWR, the Economically Simplified Boiling Water Reactor. And the design that is being proposed for Ontario is just a scaled-down version of that. That ESBWR design was a 1,500-megawatt reactor, so much larger than this. And they submitted that design to the U.S. regulator, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, in 2005. And the design was... Uh, revised about nine times, and it was only revision number 10 that got approved, and that uh, approval came in 2014. And when the revision came out and the design was certified, uh, there was absolutely no utility in the country that was interested in building one of these, or anywhere in the world. Uh, And so it's been a design that's been approved by the U.S. nuclear regulator, but never constructed because there's no interest in building one of those. Interesting. Okay. Um, a couple of questions from listeners. Uh, how, what size of a community, how much power are we talking about when we're, we're talking about generating 300 megawatts? How big is that in terms of what it would do in terms of power generation in Ontario? Um, so Ontario already has, um, you know, about 18 large reactors, uh, and those generate roughly about um, 60% of the uh, province's power. So this is going to be a really small addition to the uh, province's power generation capacity. Okay, It's not, it's not a big uh, contribution at all. Is it more important then in terms of it's the start of this process that we know a number of provinces, a number of governments are looking at and something that a lot of people say has to be part of this conversation. I mean, we know it's going to be a process. There's going to be some work to be done. But is it important in just that we're getting started on this? Um, It depends on uh, important for who. So for the companies that are uh, trying to uh, design nuclear reactors and sell them and make money of them, it's very important. And the reason is that globally, the share of 
uh, electricity that nuclear power supplies has been continuously declining since the Mm mid-1990s. It used to be about 17.5%, and it's now under 10%. And all projections uh, expect that this is only going to decline further. So for them, and at the same time, the cost of uh, its main competitors, which are solar and wind energy, renewable sources of energy, have been declining very fast. And so nuclear power is looks like it's going to go away into the sunset. And so for them, if they don't construct any in this next uh, decade or so, they would become increasingly irrelevant. Um, with this process that started, and we know, like you say, there's going to be bumps in the road, costs are going to go up, there's going to be delays, all these sorts of things. Is that just the first one? Like once we have, does this build a framework? So when Alberta and Saskatchewan and New Brunswick want to take this step, we have some sort of... Uh, um, a user manual, for lack of a better term, to go through? Does this sort of set a framework going forward in Canada? It does set a framework, but it doesn't prevent the fact that uh, uh, Saskatchewan and Alberta and so on are also going to see cost increases. Yes. Uh, That, again, is something which has historically been true. Uh, Succeeding nuclear power plants typically have cost more to build than earlier ones. Oh, really? Why is that? So the way to think about it is that as we get more experience with reactors, you discover more and more ways in which they can have accidents uh, and other kinds of problems can arise. And so if you're going to try to fix those things, those those, uh, fixes end up costing more money to build these reactors. Uh, So, for example, after seeing the accident at Fukushima, Regulators around the world know that they need to insist that uh, nuclear power plants should have alternate supplies of electricity. Uh, Surprising as it might seem, a nuclear power plant requires external electricity in order to keep it safe. The moment the entire grid shuts down for one reason or the other, in the case of Fukushima, it was the uh, it was the, the earthquake. And in uh, more recently, we've been hearing stories about the Zaporizhia nuclear plant in uh, Ukraine, where yeah. the shelling and the external electricity lines have been uh, failing repeatedly. Once that happens, there have to, there, uh, there has to be some other source of power that is cooling the reactor. And these are typically diesel generators. And so if you want to add diesel generators, if you want to make them Uh, safe against possible earthquakes and so on and so forth, all of them is going to cost money. And so that's one reason why you can imagine that costs of nuclear power uh, keep increasing. Yeah, exactly. Coming up with all the different contingencies that you have to plan for. Uh, Romano, thank you so much for your insight. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you very much, and have a good morning. You too. That is M.V. Ramana, who is a professor at the University of British Columbia School of Public Policy and Global Affairs, focusing on uh, nuclear energy. And as I said, uh, Alberta, part of the group of four, I guess, if you want to call it that, you've got Ontario, which is out in front here. And like I say, they've started the approval process and they're shooting for 2028. That's when they would like to see this SMR online generating power in the province of Ontario. Saskatchewan, Alberta, looking a little farther down the road, um, maybe as much as 10 years down the road past that, um, like somewhere in the 2030s. Rebels and reformists, a guide to the, um, 
bleep disturbers in Canadian history. That's that's why I have to do it because we're on the radio. You know the word. All right, we're talking about rabble rousers. We're talking about pot stirrers. Uh, it's the title of a column that was published in the National Post uh, earlier this week. It's a lot of fun. There's some names that you'll definitely recognize, some that you won't. Um, but basically, we're talking about some of the figures in Canadian history that sort of stepped outside the norm and and shook things up and did things differently. Some of them, you know, really dramatically. Some of them played the long game. But regardless, these are the rogues, the rebels, and the reformists. And the person behind the column is Patrice Dutille, who is a professor of politics and public administration at Toronto Metropolitan University, a senior fellow at the Bill Graham Centre for Contemporary International History at the University of Toronto, a published author. He's written a number of different books on Canadian politics. Thrilled he has time to join us today. Patrice, thanks for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Thanks for your interest. Really, really enjoyed the column. Uh, I'm glad you could join us today. We're, we're, it's a column where we talk about some of the figures in history that, you know, as I said, they, they shaped our country's history and how we ended up being what we are today. Trailblazers, I guess, right? Is that a fair way of calling it? Absolutely. Absolutely. When I'm going to call it that. <laughs> now, you break them down into these three categories, and, and there's a reason for it. So let's go through rogues, rebels, and reformers. Let's start with the rogues. What makes somebody in Canadian history a rogue? A rogue is a lone wolf, somebody who started something on their own. Uh, and, and in this case, I, I, and I emphasize this at the beginning, I, I had a very limited space. The National Post gave me two pages, which is very kind. But we're talking <laughs> Canadian history here. So yeah. Uh, the rogues are the individuals, those guys who sort of, and gals, and gals, who sort of brandished, you know, a rhetorical weapon and said, this has got to change. This has got to change. And who were historically significant. And that's an important thing, and that's a judgment call. Uh, you know, some people will say, well, you forgot this person. Well, you know, yeah, I know. But I had limited space, and I, this is kind of a personal take on history. Um, so those rogues are those people who... Who uh, stood out and who articulated a certain idea of, of what our society should be, and most importantly, what our government should be like. So that's the first category. Okay, and then we go to our uh, rebels. Now, the rebels is more of a collective. The rebels. Yeah, it's groups or movements. Case, yeah, it's groups. Groups, and in this case, I actually, uh, you know, I focused on groups that made an attempt to convince Ottawa, very much in the same way as the Freedom Convoy. These are people who stood out and said, you know, we're so angry that we're going to take our case to Ottawa. And I think that that's a very small group, and by and large, kind of an anonymous group, in the sense that their leaders are not particularly well-known. And I think they deserve a category of their own. So it sort of situates the Freedom Convoy in a historical context. And then the last group, the reformists, I gave uh, a particular uh, focus on. These are people who aren't just, you know, people who are talking, you know, spitting in the wind, but people who actually put their their words on the line and actually ran for right. office. They ran for parliament and they won. Okay, so that's very particular. These people had more than just a rhetorical power. They had a political. They were they were confirmed in their views by the people. I think those people deserve certain recognition. Fair and, enough. 
We'll go through some examples of each category in a moment. But first of all, I was struck as I read through it that some of the names on your list, incredibly well-known. I mean, prime ministers, premiers, all the rest. People will know who we're talking about. Some of them, though, I'd never heard of before. But I guess that's kind of the point, right? Canadians from all walks of life have really been able to impact the way that our country has grown up, if you will. Absolutely. And, you know, Canadians are spectacularly ignorant of their history. Yes. So I'm not, I'm not surprised. And, I'm, I, and I'm, you know, that was part of my purpose. Uh, you know, there are a lot of people who are unsung heroes and deserve recognition. And you know, the, the National Post is going to give me two pages. I'm going to take full advantage <laughs> of it. But, you know, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we just don't know our history. It's the saddest thing. It's the thing that animates me more than anything. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, and it, it, I can't agree with you more. Um, so let's do a little educating here. Let's start with our rogues, the individuals who said enough is enough, stood up and yeah. demanded change. Who stands out on that list of rogues to you? Well, who is anybody you like in particular? Uh, well, I mean, let me let me see if I can call let me call that list up again. You give me yours, and I'm just gonna I'm gonna okay. get get to it here. I'll give you mine. I'll give you mine. I'll give you mine. There's a guy who's who's not known at all. His name is Stanley Grizel. He died, he died about a decade ago. Stanley Grizel was um, a leader of the Porters Union in the 1950s. I got the chance to know Stanley Grizel 20 years ago. I liked him a lot, and for me, he's always going to be a rogue. This is a this guy was a black porter, all right? Okay. Yeah. And and he suffered. He was a he, he fought in the Second World War. He's a veteran. He comes back to Canada. And, you know, he says, well, enough of this. I'm not going to take this kind of treatment. And he dedicates himself to a labor struggle. You know, the the porters in the United States, as in Canada, were very influential. They brought black men together. But he went beyond that. There are a lot of black, mostly men, but some women in the 1950s in Ontario who really moved the needle. But Stanley Grizel went beyond that. He said, you know what? The way blacks are portrayed in the in the media is wrong uh minstrel shows i mean come on we still had minstrel shows in this country hmm. well into this in, until the early 70s and in fact you know i don't want to raise our current prime minister but it turns out that we had minstrel shows in the early 2000s but I pass, i'm going to pass on that but grizel touched the culture and in toronto he was influential he wasn't alone he wasn't alone but he was influential. I think he's he's very important. Um, what about okay? Who's the, your favorite? You asked me. Well, I don't know if I would say favorite, but the name that I recognized immediately, probably because it happened largely in my lifetime, Henry Morgenthaler, uh, a, a controversial figure, villainized at the time, yes. went through hell, I think, to make his case. Um, he stands out as someone who definitely took a stand and changed the way that our country was shaped. Well, this is the guy who was. Uh, the most public uh, doctor who, who performed abortions. Yes. And now, you know, Canada had a law. We could not perform abortions. And the organ teller says, you know what? I have a lot of women who need this service, and I'm going to make myself available to do it. This is in Montreal. He performs abortions. He's taken to court once. He's absolved twice. He's found nil- not guilty three times. Not guilty. The jury could not convict Henry Morgenthaler. As a result of Henry Morgenthaler, women in this country have a right to abortion. It's not legalized, yep. but his mission and the people around him 
you know, again, I emphasize there's always people around them. That's part of the history that needs to be uncovered. But he changed the mind. He did. Whether it's leaders of the gay community, whether it's leaders of the feminist, uh, in the feminist movement. I, I talk about June Callwood, uh, various leaders uh, in the indigenous community. I, I mean, I, I brought Phil Fontaine in that, mm-hmm. in, that, uh, yep. in that category. Now, you know, Phil Fontaine's still alive. He was a leader, uh, I mean, um, indigenous leader in Manitoba. Tell me that we have not, we have not, we are not living today the consequences of Phil Fontaine mustering the courage and saying, you know, bad things happened to me in residential schools. Right, yeah. And, you know, that's changed, that's changed our country. Whether you disagree or whether you agree, and I, you know, I've been on the record as having some, you know, pretty critical views about the whole movement around residential schools. But, you know, you have to recognize that Phil Fontaine, like Morgan Toller, uh, like Stanley Grizel, moved the needle. He's changed the country. And I think that that takes an incredible amount of courage. And that's why I recognize them in the call. Yeah, and it's notable. The, the next group, the rebels, and, and you, you, it's kind of interesting because the people that you're talking about sort of changed the needle uh, on their own, individually. I mean, of course, yeah. they had people working and supporting them. But now we get yeah. into the area of movements, and a lot of it's based around civil rights, at least the, the list that you put forward. Oh, a lot of it is about civil rights, for sure, for sure. But, you know, the, the, the rebels, the, the anonymous gangs that started gathering, you know, in the middle of the Depression, 1934-35, in, in the labor camps in British Columbia and Alberta, and who say, you know, we've had enough of this. Yes. Yeah. And we're going to Ottawa. We're going to Ottawa. We're going to take our case to Ottawa to protest the treatment that working man is being given in the middle of the recession. Uh, you know, R.B. Bennett, the uh, you know, member from Calgary, dare I say, uh, Prime Minister of the country, and people are really unhappy. Now, the Ottawa trek was was stopped. Uh, unlike the Freedom Convoy, uh, government in those days uh, took things a little bit more seriously and they stopped the Ottawa trek dead in its tracks, and it never went further than than, uh, than, than Regina or, or even Winnipeg. Bits of it were in Winnipeg. Uh, I could talk about the Winnipeg general strike. You know, we celebrated. Well, we didn't celebrate. We hardly did anything about the 1919 um, uh, general strike in Winnipeg. That was a huge movement. I mean, that was an incredible thing. The, the closest thing we had to the Winnipeg general strike anywhere in the world was what happened in, in St. Petersburg and Moscow a year, two years earlier. I mean, that was it. If you wanted to talk about red politics around the world, you had to go to Winnipeg in 1919. It's a <laughs> tremendous movement. And we forget that. You know, we just forget about how... These workers, again, these are the workers saying, you know, it's, it's after the First World War, a lot of them were veterans. A lot of them were veterans. They come home. There's inflation. There's a pandemic. Does that sound familiar to you? Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> they're out of work. They're royally PO'd. And they say, enough of this. And they literally strike. They put down their tools and they confront the Winnipeg local authorities. It's a tremendous thing. It's a tremendous thing. And they, they, did they shape Canada? Of course they shaped sure. Canada. It's enormously impactful. The last group, the reformists, has a lot of names that I think the listeners will immediately identify with. You know, you've got the likes of Wilfrid Laurier, Ernest Manning, Tommy Douglas, giants 
of Canadian yeah. history. And I guess this is sort of where, you know, the other people do a lot of the work. But like you say, these are the people that sort of made it an issue that got them elected where they were in a position to affect change. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll be as critical of politicians, the vast, vast, vast majority of politicians <laughs> as anybody else. You know, most of them just, you know, we're just I'm just glad they're there to serve. Uh, but I don't have a whole lot of regard. But at the same time, I do have tremendous respect for the people who do take the time to, you know, to make a decision to run for office and some, you know, very often sacrifice time with their family. I respect that. These people are in a category of their own. They're willing to make the sacrifice, but on top of that, they're championing causes and they're getting they're getting the vote from the people. They're saying, you know, yeah, I, I support you. I support you, and uh, you know, they have that es- that extra bit of legitimacy. Um, you know, that, that an academic or a writer, and I, you know, I, I talk about it in my introduction, you know, this is not a list of the very influential people who've shaped our culture. You know, the, right, the singers, yeah. the songwriters, a difference, yeah. the artists. It's a different thing. But these guys and gals, you know, these, these people, you know, put their words on the line and said, you know, I stand for this and I, I think it's important. And, then, and you know, they took courage. Tremendous courage. John Diefenbaker, I put in my list. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, like a lot of people, I have a lot of trouble with John Diefenbaker. And, you know, by and large, he sits really at the bottom of a Canadian prime ministers when it comes to evaluating their performance. But John Diefenbaker touched our culture very uniquely, if I can use that terrible expression. I mean, by, by, by forcing through a Bill of Rights, John Diefenbaker said... Government can't just do whatever it wants. A lot of these people in this list said government can't just be arbitrary. There has to be rules. It's not up to the government to simply say, oh, this, today we're going to do this and tomorrow we're going to do that. Oh, you know what? We don't like people like you, so we're going to treat you differently. These people said, no, government has to, has, has to end its arbitrary nature. And that takes a pride. I mean, that, you know, we've been fighting this for 300 years. Because yeah, yeah. we're always finding at some point that government has done something arbitrary. John Diefenbaker said, I mean, John Diefenbaker, a prairie progressive conservative, says, you know, government needs to have limits. Are you kidding? Government needs to have <laughs> limits? Well, what do you mean? And, and again, in those days, you know, the idea of, of changing the Constitution, of of, of putting together a charter of rights was simply unthinkable, and, and John Diefenbaker never carried off. But that kernel of an idea landed in the brain of Pierre Trudeau. And Trudeau, 20 years later, made it constitutional. So, you know, how did he do that? Well, because John Diefenbaker's idea was you know, planted firmly in the minds of nine other premiers in the country, all except René Lévesque, as we all know, mm-hmm. and I have René Lévesque in that group. He's on the list too, yeah. Uh, well, we'll talk about him in a second. <laughs> but but Diefenbaker said, you know, Trudeau was, was able to do this because because Diefenbaker had, had planted that idea. René Lévesque is a completely different beast, but René Lévesque, again, elected to office time and again, said, you know, we can't take this arbitrary treatment from Ottawa. Right. And we as Québécois need to have a certain land, we have to have particular rights. And the only way we can protect those rights is if we are a country. Right. Now, yeah. Again, Nevaek was not the first guy to say this. He's not the last guy to say this, but he, he put his views on the line, created a political party, ran on, the part, on that platform, 
and was elected. That puts him in the category of reformist. No question. But you know what, Patrice, I could talk for hours. We'll have to do this again. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. I encourage everybody to read the column and get the rest of the list because it's a lot of fun. And uh, I really enjoyed it. We'll do this again, Patrice, I promise. I hope we can. I just hope to encourage Canadians to read their history. It's yeah, a wonderful, yeah. wonderful story. Sure is. Take Thank care you. And happy New Year. You too. Thanks very much. That is Patrice right. Dutille, who is a professor of politics and public administration at Toronto Metropolitan University, a senior fellow at the Bill Graham Center for Contemporary International History at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. 